Hey, go ahead, grab your Bibles, and uh, it's Esther. We're still in Esther. I've been gone, but we're still in Esther. And we're going to be doing Esther chapter 5 this morning. Esther 5. Uh, just a quick summary, a quick review of where we've been. Esther and her cousin Mordecai, um, we remember they're Jews, they're Jewish people, they're living as exiles in the capital city of Persia, a place called Susa. And so as two people who would identify as God's chosen people, what's happening and what we've seen happening to them is they've been sucked into what we would refer to as a culture of, of compromise, right? They're, they're not in the promised land anymore, they're exiles and so they've done some funny things as being people now that are living in exile. They've concealed their nationality. They've renamed themselves after Persian gods. Uh, Mordecai puts Esther uh, in the running to marry a pagan king where she succeeds. And she does it by uh, doing some things that we probably don't really want to talk about or, or know about too deeply. She eats a lot of non-kosher food and the list goes on. And so what we've learned up to this point is that Esther and Mordecai, they're, they're actually a lot like us. They actually live in this particular level of compromise that exists in their culture where they are tempted by things. They're tempted by cultural norms of the day that actually aren't that uh, foreign to us. They're tempted by things like just rampant idolatry. Uh, addictions, by sexual perversions, by bigotry, and by really, at the end of the day, very subjective, mostly non-existent morality. So this is kind of what exists now in this particular culture. And because of this, because of these realities that they are finding themselves in as part of a faithful people living in a faithless world, man, they found that the, the capital city of Susa, it's not really a safe place. It's not a safe city, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're a minority. And we find this out the last couple of weeks when this elected official named Haman rises to political power and this brother conceives this elaborate plot to extinguish the entire Jewish race. And that sounds familiar if we have any sort of like inkling of the last hundred years of, of world history, right? So an entire people group, which includes Esther and Mordecai, have lives now that are just hanging in the balance. And so our story picks up today after Mordecai has urged his cousin, Queen Esther, to use her influence. Mordecai goes to Esther and says, do you realize what's going on? Do you realize the predicament we're in? And do you further realize that just because you're the queen doesn't mean you're going to get out of this? Because the fact is, is that you're part of the Jewish race. And when this gets found out, you're going down with the rest of us. So Mordecai comes to Esther and he pleads with her. He says, please use your influence. Go before King Ahasuerus. Plead your case before him. Now, again, this sounds well and good, uh, except anybody who goes before the king, we find out, without being asked, risks death. And so this is what we might refer to as uncontrolled chaos. And although most of us aren't going to actually experience uncontrolled chaos to these depths, we can all understand it on some cursory level. So last week I was on a bunch of planes as I was traveling all over for various things, and um, I ended up in Chicago uh, for a couple of connecting flights. And if you know anything about Chicago, you know that very rarely do you really even connect with a flight in Chicago, uh, because there's nothing but delays and cancellations, which is why the elders agreed to buy me a private jet uh, with substance money. Um, 
So I'm on my way home. I'm getting into Chicago's, as I like to call it, having the layover. The flight's already late. Um, I'm looking at my, my watch, and by watch, I mean my phone. And uh, we're pulling into the tarmac. We're sitting on the tarmac. And I'm looking at the time of my next flight, and it's, I'm 25 minutes away from takeoff. And I'm just, I'm already, I mean, I'm throwing up my hands. I happen to be in row 38, which is the back row in the corner, the furthest one back of this massive jet. And I'm like, I can't believe it. I'm literally, all I want to do is get home. And I'm literally going to miss my flight. And so I look at the two guys next to me. I go, brothers, can you just let me out? Because I just want to mow down all these people and get to the front of this plane as soon as I can. They're like, yeah, sure. They stand up. The rest of the plane stands up like there's no way I'm mowing down anybody, right? And so here it is. I'm Ronnie Martin. And um, if you know anything about the Martins, you know that we're very impatient people. And uh, we get very upset when our comfort level is challenged. And so I'm just, I'm throwing up my hands. And uh, all of a sudden, a voice comes over the intercom about five minutes later when I've already, you know, thrown my bag down and just sort of settled into whatever kind of flight that I'm going to get later in the day. And this is what the voice said. It said, if there's a Mr. Martin traveling to Columbus, please remain on the plane because this is your plane. And I just went, huh? <laughs> you know, I got these two brothers looking at me like, I guess you didn't have to be so angry and worried, did you? <laughs> to which one of them said, and remind me again, what do you do for a living? You know? So I didn't know, I never knew, they never told me it was the same plane. Um, and the moral of the story is what felt uncontrolled to me was never out of control to the pilot. Never out of control. I was always on a plane going to my final destination. I just didn't know it. And this is our theme today as we dive into Esther chapter 5. And I'm going to read right now and it says this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request. It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall uh, be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Let's stop right there for the moment. So what we're going to see right here is this contrast between Esther and Haman, two people that are thrust into situations of which they have no idea what the outcome is going to be. And what we see here at the very beginning is what we see through the entire book is that we see this unseen favor that God has towards Esther. And so to back up a little bit, what we recognize is that everything has changed for them. 
Everything has changed for Esther and Mordecai than the way it was at the beginning of the book. The Israelites were in mourning. Mordecai is covered in sackcloth and ashes. You got this racist madman named Haman, right? Who has hatched this plan to destroy an entire race of people. Not only that, but he gets the king to sign off on it, right? So unless you're a sociopath, this should bring to mind some kind of crazy, chaotic circumstance in your own life where your only thought has been, God in heaven, where are you? What is going on? What the heck, right, as we would say? And here's what's interesting. And what this kind of, kind of pulls up in my own heart is that when everything is going peachy, right? And you guys, maybe some of you guys are in one of those moments. Maybe some of you wish that you were heading towards one of those moments, but you're not sure. But we recognize that when everything is going peachy, we think God must be relaxing on his throne, right? With a proud, fatherly smile on his face, bragging to the angels about how awesome we are. We kind of get that sense of it when everything seems to be played out in blessings in our life. But the minute things go south, we think, well, God must be on an extended vacation. And when he's on an extended vacation, he doesn't answer my emails. So I don't know where he is, what to do, what he thinks, or where I need to go. And this challenges, the, the, the subconsciousness of those things challenges what we think about God's character because we're not given any clue that God was working behind the scenes in Esther's dilemma either, right? Yet the implication here is that he's never absent even when he's silent. We talked about that in week one. What verses one through seven teach us is that it's always better, listen, it's always better to ask good questions about God's purposes than make wrong assumptions about his goodness. Let me say that again. It's always better as believers to ask good questions when we find ourselves in places like this about God's purposes rather than make wrong assumptions about his goodness. So if we look at this test, we wanna ask this, could it be that God was allowing this cataclysmic event to unfold so that his people would come to a place of fasting, weeping, and lamenting? I mean, we look at times in our life of uncontrolled chaos and think that's when everything is going wrong, right? Instead of seeing those times as moments when God breaks us free from the bonds of our control in order to make things right. You guys following me? I mean, just think of a moment in your life when you had no moves left. I mean, like Esther has one move left and then there are no moves left. But think of some of those times in your life when you have no moves left, you need someone, right? You need anyone to come alongside and help because your resources have been depleted and your courage is just spent. So what we need to ask in those moments is what is really happening? Well, what's really happening is that we're finally getting a glimpse of our true self and we're being formed with the kind of humility that brings us before the throne to beg for mercy to plead for courage, to pray for wisdom, and to nag God for grace. That's the place Esther was in when she comes before the king. And guess what? The king hears her just like our king hears us when our heart is grieving and when our eyes are wet with mourning. Well, how does God respond here to Esther? Well, God gives Esther courage 
That's what we see. God supplies Esther with the courage to approach the king because you know what? It's time. It's time for Esther. It's time for her to use her influence for the good of others. It's time to risk. That's the place Esther finds herself in. And there's actually, when you think about it, there's some irony going on here too because years earlier, we remember Queen Vashti. Remember in chapter one, she refuses to come to the king when he calls, but now Esther does the opposite. Esther approaches the king hoping she won't be refused. And the king, what does he do? What's his response? Well, he hands the golden scepter to her and he shows her mercy. Now listen, we don't always know if, if uh, complicated and chaotic life situations are always going to end favorably for us. But we do know something in that. And what we do know is that courage is a virtue that God gives his people so they don't fall into paralysis, but hold fast to his providence. And that's what's going on with this woman who needs to make a very risky and courageous move for the sake of others. So God gives Esther courage in a very uncontrollable and volatile situation, and then he extends mercy to her. Now listen, that mercy, right? That mercy may look like it's coming through King Ahasuerus. And again, we're, you know, as King Ahasuerus just sort of changes shape and form before us, and he just seems like he's becoming this benevolent dude who's just all about you know, good things and mercy and charity. I mean, we, we, we don't wanna forget what kind of a king this is, because really at the end of the day, King Ahasuerus never proved himself to be the most merciful king. And so what we wanna do as believers is we wanna see what's really going on. We wanna really understand that though mercy may look like it's coming through King Ahasuerus, the golden scepter of mercy that Esther actually receives is the result of a heavenly king who doesn't rule on an earthly throne. Let this help you. Let this help you when you feel like you're in the midst of something that feels completely outside of your control and comfort. Because what we wanna ask when we start using words like uncontrolled, okay, is this, uncontrolled to who? Uncontrolled to who? Esther's mercy came from another king and yours does too and so does mine. So the king extends his scepter of mercy to Esther and offers her half the kingdom. He's pleased with her, which by the way, wasn't literal. It just means the king was sort of flexing, uh, you know, off all of his kingly power to basically show that whatever he decides to give somebody, he's in control and he's able to give it. So all through this stressful chain of events, what we see is that God is faithfully favoring Esther with courage and with mercy. But all the while, and this gets us to the second part, he's unfolding Haman's fate. And again, we never want to fear about God not being able to handle all the things that are put on his plate because God is a multitasker, you know? They've done studies on multitasking. And one of the studies they've done on multitasking is to tell us that none of us are really multitaskers and that we would actually do a lot better work if we would just focus on one thing and put our all into that one thing and do everything we can to master and accomplish this, you know, the particular discipline that we have set our minds and focus to. Multitasking actually kind of strips us away from doing a good job at one thing, and we do mediocre jobs on a lot of things. Not God. 
God is a multitasker, which means he has all of these things going on at the same time. And somehow they're all working providentially to accomplish his will. You know what that does for me? That allows me to remember that God is not me. And that's helpful to somebody like me who thinks he's kind of godlike a lot. So God favors Esther while unfolding Haman's fate. Let's pick up in verse eight. This is what it says. I'm sorry, verse nine. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Verse 13, yet. All this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So on one hand, it would appear that Haman is having like his best day ever right? A personal invite to not one, count it up, two feasts, private feasts with the king and queen, but then all the joy gets sucked right out of him when Mordecai refuses to pay homage, or is it homage? Say it again. Thank you. I couldn't hear her. So I didn't check this word with my wife, which is what I do, and I don't know how to pronounce a word, and I forgot to do that. So just... Uh, just putting you on notice there. Um, but let's get something straight here because this is really, really kind of a funny part of the story. Um, one snub from a dude in sackcloth and ashes who is facing, by the way, imminent extinction is all it takes for Haman's day to unravel. Like that's it? That's all this was? I mean, wasn't he hanging with his friends? Wasn't he bragging about his wealth? Wasn't he shooting his mouth off about his family, his offspring, his successful career, and all the parties he was getting invited to? Yet all of this is nothing to me, he says in verse 13. That was like me on the plane, right? All of this is nothing to me because there's a Jewish man sitting at the gate who does what? Who reminds me of my humanity. That's what's really going on, right? Now listen, if we're honest... All right, chapter five should reveal to us that we identify with the character of Haman far more than we identify with Esther. I'm just saying, right? We love everyone to know when things are going great, don't we? We love taking credit for our blessings. We get like mucho satisfaction from Facebook likes and Insta stories, right? That highlight the kind of life we want our friends to believe that we have. But like Haman, one of the indicators that our self-interests have spiraled out of control is how easily our happiness collapses when those interests get challenged. When the objects of our trust start shifting uncomfortably and uncontrollably, 
Now, make no mistake, Haman is a trusting man. Haman is a trusting man, just like we all are. The question is, what do we place our trust in? The question is never whether any of you all have any trust. Y'all have a lot of trust. It's something that just exists intrinsically in us. The question is, where is that trust? What is the object of that trust being placed on? Right, so for Haman, man, he's trusting in his wealth, his accomplishments, his career, and his status to carry him, and all he's getting in return is an increasing level of anxiety. Isn't that interesting? He's trusting in collapsible assets. And I mean, we learned something about that, didn't we, back in 2008, right? You guys remember? A lot of you were affected by that. I was out in California. When the housing market tanked, stocks plummeted, and we learned something about the unsteady, untrusting nature of housing values. I mean, you guys are all kind of nodding, like I can sense that, right? What Haman doesn't know is that the favor God extended to Esther included the very unfolding of his own fate, which was part of the favor that God was showing Esther. But there's no way for Haman to know that. There's no way for Haman to see this. So what does he do? He continues down the path of trusting in those things which will ultimately turn on him and boomerang against him. So he takes the advice of his wife Zeresh and he has a gallows built to hang Mordecai on. Now, here's what we're going to see next week in full effect is that it actually turns on Haman. Those gallows boomerang against him. It actually reminds me of some passages in the book of Psalms. Turn with me to Psalm 73 because Psalm 73 really speaks to this because we struggle with the Hamans out there, don't we? We struggle with people that have a level of influence that we see are also simultaneously wicked that don't use what God has given them for good and for flourishing. And sometimes we don't understand why they continue to just be allowed to exist the way they are allowed to exist. Look at the way the psalmist talks about it in Psalm 73. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Go up to verse 16, and then he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, 
afterward, afterward, you will receive me to glory. Because whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Then he finishes by saying, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. So for those of us who struggle, who have been damaged, who have been wounded, for some of you might even feel like irreparably by the Hamans of the world, or you stand back and you see people in power and control that exhibit this kind of behavior, and you just go, is there a God that is going to allow this forever? The psalmist reminds us there is a God who is not going to allow this forever. When our self-interests rise to a level reserved only for God, man, we want to eliminate anyone who threatens those interests. And that's the story of Haman. But that kind of heart, it betrays its owner in the end. So let's stand a little bit closer to Haman now that we backed up a little bit. Because most of you probably aren't building gallows to hang that one coworker on who keeps dissing you behind your back, right? I know you want to, but you're probably not literally going to Home Depot and like getting the order, bringing it home, and you know, two by fouring it up, right? If you are, talk with me after the, after the service. We got to chat. But don't we construct other kinds of gallows? Are we that different? Gallows that represent a level of control that fuels our desire to be the king and queen of our lives? Haman's gallows represents us. It represents the very things that turn on us in the end. It's the bankruptcy of getting the thing you want when it's the wrong thing, right? That's happened to all of us. Man, if I can just get fill in the blank. Man, if I can just achieve fill in the blank. I mean, it's like feeding a log into a blazing fire. It just gets consumed ultimately every time. Jesus said in Mark 8, he said, look, there's a different way. That's my words. There's a different way. There's a different posture. There's a different heart. There's a different approach for those who are followers of me. He said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So in other words, if the kind of thrones that Haman was ultimately building for himself to rule and reign from, if those are the ones that we desire to reign from, they will eventually be the ones we bow down to, but they will not be thrones of favor and grace. They will be gallows for us. And that's what we see happening here with Haman. And yet through all of this, what else do we see? Well, we see unseen things. We see the unique providential nature of God here at work. A God who favors Esther while unfolding Haman's fate, while proving himself totally in control of man's uncontrolled chaos. So I'm gonna finish with these three things to remember 
as we consider God's control over our uncontrolled chaos. Number one is this. Our chaos is only uncontrolled by us. Our chaos is only uncontrolled by us. So what do we do when we find ourselves in that particular place? Well, we go back to God's word to see how his control is over seemingly uncontrollable situations. In fact, that is the only narrative that the Bible has to offer us, right? The fruit that Adam ate that brought death, controlled. Abraham jump-starting God's plan to give him a son, controlled. Joseph separated from his father and sold into slavery, controlled. 400 years of Egyptian oppression for the Israelites, controlled. Gideon facing an army 100 times the size of his own, controlled. King David falling into a mess of murder, adultery, and complexity that would follow him the rest of his life and the rest of his children's lives, controlled. The prophet Jonah disobeying a direct order from God, controlled. What do you do in an uncontrollable crisis? Because the world's answer is just freak out until something works out. I'm freaking out. Freak out until something works out. That's not the way of faith, is it? The only way to have a settled heart in uncontrolled chaos is to trust that God is in control, to not lean on your own understanding. So, for those of you who are in uncontrollable and chaotic circumstances, you stop your stirring today and you quietly or you loudly go before the Lord and plead your case to him. You go to a spouse, you go to a friend, you go to a parent, you come to one of your pastors after the service, you share the circumstances of your chaos. And you know what happens? You get a fresh infusion of God's grace. You become acquainted again with the compassion of Jesus. You pray for a renewed reorientation with the cross, which is the place where uncontrolled chaos becomes restful assurance. That's what you do today by remembering that your chaos is only uncontrolled by us. Secondly, you remember that our greatest risks are never greater than God. Christians are called to courage. Did you know that? We're called to courage because our greatest risks are never greater than God. I remember when I was learning how to ride a bike and my dad would follow me and he would have his hand on the seat and I was like, don't let go, don't let go, don't let go. Eventually, the old guy let go and I didn't know he let go and when I found out he let go, I got wobbly and I fell and I said, I told you not to let go. Right? But he said, well, you know, again, the, the analogy breaks down. God never lets go of the back of our seat, okay? We're never pedaling alone. I'm not slamming my pops. It's a different thing. But he never lets go. He never lets go. And what this means is like Esther, man, we could just use wisdom to make decisions, to make hard decisions, to make right decisions when we are in clutch moments. So for those of you who, like Esther, need to take a risk 
because it's the right and timely thing to do, do this. Flood yourself with memories of all the moments that God has worked through your lack of courage as a way for renewed courage to be rebuilt in you today. We need to go back, we need to recount all the moments that God came through so that courage returns to our hearts. Because listen, even the desire for courage is in itself a courageous act. So utilize that. Utilize the grace God has given you in this multitude of brothers and sisters, by the way, who will uphold you in your wobbliness, who will be your courage when you are thinking, if anything lets go of me right now, I'm going to fall. Well, again, remember, God doesn't let you go and go to a brother or sister who can be that tangible, invisible hand that upholds you. Because our greatest risks are never greater than God. And finally, God will not be stopped. Yeah, it's not a very like brilliant like theological concept, is it? Except it is. And I didn't come up with it, so I can say that. God will not be stopped. Do you guys hear me? I need you to hear me. God will not be stopped. Think about that. In your life, God will not be stopped. Has your life fallen outside of God's ability? Has it? Have your circumstances riven, risen above like his pay grade? Is that where we're at today? Because we want to remember once again that the Hamans will not prosper forever. That's why our focus is not on Esther as the hero. That's why it's not on Haman as the villain. Our focus is on an invisible, invincible God who rules on a throne of mercy and grace that is in control of all of our uncontrolled chaos. God can't be stopped. And we know God can't be stopped because we know nothing stopped Jesus. Think about the contrast here between Esther and Jesus. All of the plots against him. All of the seemingly uncontrolled chaos surrounding the events leading up to the cross. Like Esther, it was Jesus who said, not my will, but yours be done. And was shown the favor of the king of kings as he delivered you and me from the wrath of God. Again, it's this invisible, invincible throne that is a throne of grace because it's where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those who bow before him in love, hope, repentance, receiving forgiveness. So maybe you're like me today. You find yourself in a season of discouragement. Don't miss some things. Don't miss the unseen providential potential of a God that is the creator and sustainer of hope. If you could take a walk through the woods at Freer Field like I do often, man, it is so sparse right now. It is sparse. It's hard to imagine that things are actually happening underneath 
that soil. It's hard to imagine all the colors that are waiting to bloom and blossom in such a short amount of time. So like Esther, we need to walk in courage. We need to plead for hope. We need to redirect our eyes back to the sufferings of Jesus that God ordained for the joy of our salvation. We need to pray Psalm 121, and that's where I'm going to finish and have you close your eyes now. And it says this, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Lord, thank you for not being sleepy. Lord, thank you that when we look up, we have a tangible hope and a tangible help. Lord, we acknowledge you as creator over the heavens and the earth. We thank you that even though it feels like our lives are shifting and our circumstances are just in various states of chaos and uncontrol, they're never in that place for you. And so, Lord, receive us today like you received Esther with mercy and with grace. We're reminding us, Lord, that you are there. You are waiting as we wait for you. Lord, it's through this church, it's through the support and the care of our fellow brothers and sisters that we have a hope that is not simply unseen, but can be seen and embraced through the hearts that exist around this room and the support that we have and the love that we share because of the cross that has forgiven us and made us whole again. Do this work in us today, Lord, and we thank you for it, and we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.